welcome to another episode of Spotlight on Natural Resources, where we shine some light on what's going on in your environment. I'm your host, Erin Garrett. And I'm your co-host, Abigail Garfalo. And today we are here with Amy Leffringhouse, who is an extension educator in natural resources, environment, and energy. And we are going to be talking about nature at night. So welcome, everyone. Thanks for joining us. And welcome, Amy. Oh, thank you. <laughs> so today we're talking all about nature at night. So I know many of us like to be outside during the daytime, hike, experience nature, explore, but why should we experience nature at night? Great question. I love this question. Um, don't count out your nighttime um, when it comes to exploring. Every single season has a different, quote, night. Um, it could be long winter nights where they're cold and clear, and it could be your late sunsets in summer where you're staying up late and looking for all different kinds of things. There's always something to discover. Um, most of our Illinois wildlife or Illinois mammals, over 60% of them are actually nocturnal. So there's lots of different things that you might see. Um, your senses are heightened at night. Uh, the sound is louder at night. The temperatures are cooler at night. Um, and once your eyes adjust, you can actually see, see further than um, what, you, what you think you can. Um, the human eye actually... Um, adapts to the dark after a few minutes, but if you're out there for a half hour, you can actually um, see your your eye is 600 times more sensitive um, at that point in time than when you first turn off the light or if you first walk out into the dark. So we actually have um, better senses than we actually think we do when we're out there in the dark, once you get used to it. That's crazy. I feel like, um, yeah, like right before I go to bed, when I turn all of the lights, I'm like, oh, no, like <laughs> I haven't seen here. What am I looking at? Um, but then like, yeah, you wake up in the middle of the night and you're like, I can see here. This is exactly. the same. So, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Exactly. Just patience with yourself and kind of, you know, just adjusting to that and giving yourself that time to adjust. You'll be able to see a lot more things. Yeah. Well, what kinds of things are we looking for at night? Um, what are the wildlife doing that we're seeing? So there, there are a lot of processes that are happening at night when it comes to wildlife and plants. So they're they're doing a lot of the same things that they do during the day. You know, they're finding their food, they're finding mates, they're hiding from predators. Um, that 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 difference in between um, you know animals that are using the day, which are diurnal animals, and those that are using the nighttime for activity, it allows them to occupy the same space, maybe even, you know, hunting some of the same things for food um, that uh, switchover actually allows um, them to, to live in the same areas. Um, when it comes to migration, especially birds, migration is happening at night. Um, when I was, you know, kind of looking up some information about this, um, the U of I uh, researchers have actually used vocalizations to try to attract birds to wetland areas. Um, and they were when they were setting up the study, they were thinking about that migration pattern, the nighttime migration pattern. So they they use bird vocalizations to try to um, attract some wetland birds to these wetland restoration sites. So I thought that was really interesting. Um, they were just thinking about those patterns that that birds use. Um, when they're migrating in the evening time. Um, obviously, we're talking about nocturnal animals, so they have these special features and adaptations. Of course, something that you learned, you know, way back in 
and early science, but they have large large eyes gathering more light. Um, they moths even have special sensors that can um, sense the presence of bats and kind of avoid being prey. Um, bats, of course, we've heard those uh, heard about bats a long time about how they can echolocate with that um, high pitched noise and finding their prey. Um, so there's lots of different um, adaptations that these these critters have evolved to to be a better survivors at nighttime. <clears throat> awesome. I had never thought about birds migrating at night, which now sounds really obvious that they do, but um, that's really cool to to learn a little bit more about that because you know, obviously with we're not outside paying attention, you know, we don't know that that's happening. so right. It was that's actually. That's the thing. Most of them migrate at night, right? Is that the standard? Yeah. And I know a lot of um, hunters and things like that, they they really look at the moon phases. If there's a full moon, they know that there could be a, a you know, big migration um, that evening and hopefully, you know, looking for a good hunt, I guess, the next the next early morning. So, yeah. Interesting. All right. So, we know a little bit more about what is happening at night, but if we are out experiencing nature at nighttime, what are some things that we could expect to see? And especially sounds, what are some things that we could expect to hear? Yeah, the um, the sequence of sounds, depending on the season, I guess, typically follow a pattern. If you go out to a specific site over and over again, you kind of, you know, get in tune with the pattern and the sequence that that is happening. Um, I have a little bit of an observational story that I wanted to read just from some of my observations um, being outside. So um, I'll read this to you and then I'll just kind of um, stop and talk about some of the um, some of the critters that I'm talking about in this story. So I shall begin here. So a myriad of songbirds sound their final goodbyes to each and other and to the day. As I walk along the field edge, the chortle of a dominant gobbler bellows out from the top of a nearby creek sycamore tree. At 8.11 p.m., the barred owl announces the official beginning of night with its unmistakable questioning call. Upon hearing the massive bird's throaty voice, area coyotes yip, whine, and cackle to collectively pinpoint each other's locations and to make their plans for the night. For a full 20 seconds, the coyotes cry out and then turn abruptly silent as they become ghosts in the night. The dominant gobbler again bellows out its chortle. In the distance, a lonesome dove sounds off with its even more lonesome call. As I near the pond, the voices of the sleepy songbirds are drowned out by the songs of a handful of tree frogs and a pond full of cricket frogs. Cricket frogs, if you've ever heard, sound like marbles clacking together. A single bullfrog calls out from somewhere across the pond. The gobbler again chortles from his, his lofty perch. Dusk has now finally arrived. Stars and a few planets have suddenly and magically appeared in the ever-darkening sky. The persistence of the gobbler is apparently rewarded. Several turkey hens can be heard helicoptering into the sycamore tops along the creek. Their clumsy crash landings marked by nervous chirps and broken branches. As I walk away from the pond, the musical melodies from the orchestra of frogs fade away. A lone whippoorwill calls out for its mate. And I wanted to see, I might, I'm going to try to play this um, whippoorwill song. Uh, hopefully you guys can hear this. 
Um, but whippoorwills, you'll hear it. When you hear this, you'll know what I'm talking about and you'll recognize what I'm hearing. But I want to talk a little bit more about um, whippoorwills. Well, I did some research about whippoorwills, and actually, um, they're part of the uh, nightjar family of birds. Uh, we have three confirmed breeding species of nightjars in Illinois. This includes the whippoorwill. It includes the chuckwills widow, which is down in southern Illinois, Aaron, where you're at, and the night the nighthawk. So these birds, these nightjars, uh, feed at dusk, dawn, and at night. They're aerial insectivores which I thought was really cool. They And they're also sallying feed feeders, which sallying means they are catching the bugs in the air, but they're bringing them back to their perch and eating them on their perch versus hawking, which is hawking is when birds are flying around and they'll catch the insect in the air, but they'll eat while they're still flying. And their favorite food are moths. So maybe because they're getting like larger insects or something like that, they're a medium-sized bird. So, a, 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 you know, larger than a little song, a tiny songbird. So they're, they're sallying. They go out, catch it, bring it back to their perch and eat on their perch. Um, they have large eyes, um, obviously adapted for that night hunting. Um, but they are decreasing in, in numbers. And U of I researchers are are trying to figure out um, why this might happen. This might be happening. Um, they're studying the life cycles, the diets. They know that their favorite food is our moth, food are moths. Um, they know that with a brighter moonlight and also with a higher moon up in the sky, like the altitude of the moon up in the sky, that's when they are the most active, um, which makes sense. Um, they can see better. They like um, the forest edges, so they'll be it, within the forest area, but they hunt out there where it's kind of open. And they were uh, hypothesizing that it was probably because the insects are backlit so they can see out into that, you know, open area. Oh, that goes along with like the bigger, brighter moon as well. Like having a brighter moon and having that open field, they're allowed to like they that that gives that backlight effect even more strongly. Ah, interesting. Isn't that cool. That's, That's really so cool. Yeah, love they biology. Also, <laughs> they also they also found that uh, so they love these forest edges, but even like low level human development, even like just a little bit of a development nearby. Um, uh, really significantly decreases uh, the abundance of birds in those areas. So these guys, um, you know, it really shows the importance of moth populations and, you know, researching these birds really shows the importance of, you know, habitat protection and lower level human activity in certain areas where these where these uh, whippoorwills are are existing and living. So I thought that was interesting. Um, you know, I just take for granted that I've heard whippoorwills in the back of, you know, in the background when I'm outside at night. So, so back to my story. So we have the whippoorwills are calling out at 8.48 p.m. The, the, the gobbler uh, bellows out its final chortle of the day. Um, and there's an exception of an occasional sound of a spring peeper. The farm is now silent. All around me, though unseen and unheard, the fur-bearing creatures of the night must be taking their reign. Like phantoms, the foxes and bobcats begin their individual hunts for prey. 
the beaver, otter, and muskrat busy themselves in nest building or tree felling. The skunk, possum, and raccoon scurry about foraging for food and mischief, all silent at this point, mere phantoms of the night. So fur-bearing mammals, like your coyote, bobcat, everything that I just mentioned, they're another segment of critters that use the night, um, you know, for their hunting um, activities. The DNR, the Illinois Department of Natural Resources, each year um, since 1981, so over 40 years, um, they they perform uh, fur-bearing surveys, um, consists of about 40 routes, about a thousand miles. They run, biologists run, they see what they can, um, they note the species that they observe. Um, it's interesting because the trends say that coyotes and the raccoon population are increasing. In fact, when they started the surveys, you could find one raccoon every two miles. And now it's actually over three, it's three and a half raccoons. <laughs> per two miles. So oh, forget that half raccoon. Exactly. 3.55. Oh. <laughs> but unfortunately, foxes, both the gray and the red fox, are are in a decline. They haven't been seeing those as much since they began those surveys. So obviously that data helps um, you know, wildlife officials set harvest regulations, seasons, um, you know, and just keeping an eye on those populations. So here we go back to our story. So Stationary now, the night silence is broken by a fluttering, rustling sound. Is it perhaps a bat fluttering in its chaotic flight pattern above me? Or perhaps a field mouse seeking and finding a morsel of food? Or simply a moth fluttering in the tall grass to my left? The answer, I shall never know. Silence is the dominant feature of this spring night. It is periodically broken by the hooves and snorts of grazing white-tailed deer, the padded hop of a cotton-tailed rabbit, or the call or chatter of one of the previously mentioned creatures. A pair of great horned owls call to each other across the field in the three, three o'clock hour. My question is not who, get it, but where? <laughs> yeah, we get it. <laughs> where are the sounds of your owl cousins on the farm? The barred owl, the screech owl. 4.30 a.m. and the songbirds yawn and begin their chatter and sing. Shortly thereafter, my old friend, the Dominic Gobbler, bellows out its first chortle of the day. Chirps and songs and hoots and chortles fill the final moments of night. With the first of the sun's rays, a pileated woodpecker machine guns a hollow tree and the night hours officially end. So that's kind of my fun, like, little story about my experience outdoors. Yeah, so where did you write that or did that, like, where did that come from? Yeah. so beautiful. Kind of like a journal of an outdoor experience, you know, just having the patience to just kind of sit around and listen and note and take down what you're hearing and what you're maybe feeling, smelling, um, you know, that sort of thing. And then going out really early, you know, in the early morning hours, just to see what's what's happening in that the waking hours of the day, just a really, um, really neat experience. Yeah, I feel like we heard about so much, so so many really good descriptions. Um, we heard owls, mammals, um, bats. Bats are mammals, so and other birds and insects. Um, you know, are what are what about insects? We didn't really hear about those. So obviously, we're not. I mean, maybe a buzz flying by your ear or a pesky little, little mosquito, but you can't hear a lot of your insects. But 
one of the most celebrated insects of the summertime is your fireflies. Um, we do- now wait. Do you say firefly or lightning bug? Well, I don't know. I think I now that I've you know read and worked in the field, I say firefly. But growing up, lightning bug. Lightning. What about you, Erin? <laughs> uh, firefly now used to be lightning bug. <laughs> there we go. There we go. Um, we do have 20 species in Illinois. Um, the most common, commonly seen in Illinois is your Big Dipper. They have that J, you know, fight, um, or fight, flight pattern and flash um, pattern. Um, but also insects like moths there. I mean, and Erin, you could have a, a whole nother podcast about moths. I know you celebrate moths and in uh, festivals in Southern Illinois. Yes, we do. Yes, we do. And I was going to say, too, we have a cypress firefly in southern Illinois that is only found in cypress swamps, which is what we have. Um, And they have a really cool blink pattern where they'll blink. I can't remember how many times, about five times. And then they do like a swoop at the end. Um, And it's really fun to see. And I didn't know that fireflies have different colors, too. Like the different species blink different colors. Um, So... It's really interesting to learn more about them. I did like a deep dive last year on fireflies. Um, it's really cool. It's definitely something to pay attention to and like look for different blink patterns because you might find or in different colors too. But yes, also moths. So many moths in Southern Illinois across the state. But like we are in, I'm in a great place to see moths. <laughs> so many moths. So many moths. Um, we... In Illinois, we have 2,000 species of butterflies and moths, okay? So a ton of species of butterflies and moths. Of that, only 150 are the butterfly, are your are, are butterflies. The rest, 1,850 species are moths. So we have a ton of moths here in Illinois. Um, now, I was always a little confused about the difference between a butterfly and a moth. Is it purely just like body? Is there like behavioral shapes? Is there an official scientific difference? Like what is the thought process? Do you know? Well, I have been taught that there's a few different <laughs> there's a few different ways that you can tell a uh, wing um, resting wing shape, I guess is that how you call that. Aaron, you might know. Position, resting wing position, open or closed is what I would say. A lot of times your moth antenna have like feathered or, yeah, feathery type um, texture, I guess, on their antenna. Butterfly mostly has like a bulb. Yeah. Those are a couple of the the main differences that I know. Aaron, you might know more than I do. I mean, there's more, but those are kind of like in general. And then typically, you know, butterflies are um, active in the day and moths are active at night. Although, you know, some moths are active in the day too. We see them out and about. Um, so that's not like the hard and fast rule. But cool. Well, sorry for throwing you a, a something out of left field. I just was like, yeah. it, I was like, ooh, it is different. So thank I you love, for clarifying. I love the curiosity. Um, so yeah, moths can be moths. Can you can study moths uh, till your heart's desire? Uh, we have lots of different color patterns, uh, lots of different cool plant associations too. Our sphinx moths um, are pollinators of uh, our evening primroses here in Illinois. So 
Um, yeah, uh, again, moths a great indicator species. If they if you don't have the plants that they pollinate or feed on, then you're not going to have moths around. So um, definitely pay attention to those um, species. Yeah, moths are also something that if you because what I'm thinking about in the background, I love being outside, but at nighttime I don't want to get eaten by mosquitoes. So I will go outside at night, but moths I like watching from inside my house with the lights on because we'll get the moths that come to the windows, right? Or if we have a light outside, then we can watch them. But we've had like Luna moths come that are, you hear a little tap on the window. Oh, it's a big sud. <laughs> I was going to say, little gentle tap of the chalky Luna. <laughs> and run and see the, the beautiful green Luna moth like outside. It's amazing if you're just aware what you can see or i saw a moth when i went out to in the morning it was on the garage and like right where i walked and it just just paying attention um it's it's just amazing right i think that's about that's like the key to all observation in nature right is that paying attention and when you dive deep into a subject they they're there right when you're trying to buy a new car and you want a specific car you're like i see those cars everywhere you know and when it's in nature you're like oh i've I really want to know or see more fireflies or see different types of fireflies than you're looking at or different types of moths you're looking and seeing a lot more um, uh, when you're observing that closely. So, so yeah. So if you want to take that a step further, you want to get off your couch, unlike me, who's just watching the moths that come to the windows. What can we do to experience a night adventure? Are there places that we are like events that are happening or other activities that we can do to try to observe nature outside. Yeah, there I think I think one thing that you can do to to experience nature, you know, all around our state there are nature centers and nature areas that are having, you know, hosting events where they're going to lead you through um, a nighttime adventure. Look for, you know, night hikes, full moon hikes, owl prowls, stargazing, all of those activities are really neat for those, you know, first timers or beginners that want to go out with someone that's going to, you know, show them um, all the the magical things that are happening at night. You can also do some, you know, just in your backyard, do it yourself types of things. Um, there are eye shine activities. If you're going to, you know, walk out and kind of put your flashlight up on your head and look for spider eyes, spider eyes will reflect back to you so you can see that in nature. Um, sorry, all of us were on video right now for you podcast listeners, and both Aaron and I's face was like, spider eyes, interesting. Like, we did yes. not know that about spiders. That was very cool. Yes, yes. And all those little bitty, little bitty sparkles can be spider eyes looking back at you. So that's a really, really kind of fun. I am not going to be telling my partner that because he would be horrified. <laughs> But I love it. So. <laughs> yes. Uh, well, and obviously you can um, stay inside, Erin. I know. go outside too, I promise. Erin's <laughs> so probably outside more than I am. So <laughs> if y'all listening are like, Erin, she needs to get out more. Like, no, I'm the exactly. creature comfort person in, in this podcast today. So, <laughs> Well, then I'll, ch I'll say to you, Abigail, camera traps or trail cameras are a real cool way to see some things that you don't get to see um, outside and you don't, I mean, you're not outside the whole entire time, but you can kind of get a feel for what's out there and, and get pictures of things that, you know, you, 
mean, mammals, we'll not, we're not going to walk through the woods and see, you know, bobcat, like just chilling out right next to the trail. But with a, with a camera trap or a trail camera, um, you might be able to see, see those things on your property or, um, so that's, that's kind of a neat thing to do. Um, I had a group near me have a, a light sheeting event, uh, for moths, uh, where, you know, you could put a light up against a white sheet and, and attract moths and, and sometimes they'll sit real still and you can get lots of pictures of, of different types of moths. So that's kind of some some cool things. One thing I do want to talk about um, that the um, Illinois Natural History Survey has, if you're really into owls and night jars, like we were talking about the whippoorwills, um, they have a moon program. It's a community science program where they are counting owls and counting night jars based on calls. Um, it's a volunteer program. They realized in 2008 that the bird breeding survey, the Christmas bird count, the spring bird count didn't catch those nocturnal birds. So they implemented um, this moon program. And so you drive a short route, you get out, you listen um, for these birds, you kind of learn the, their calls, obviously, before you go out there. And there's some training websites, but it's called the Moon Program. Uh, the website is moon.inhs.illinois.edu. So if you're interested to do some more, you know, out nighttime activities and, and contribute to research that the U of I is doing, um, please check that out. That's awesome. I'm really excited to see some some spider eyes. Sure. Um <laughs> I do have a question, though. So I live in Cook County near Chicago, big city, lots of streetlights. Um, you know, you even if you fly over Chicago, you're like, oh, that's Chicago. I can see the, the grid pattern and everything. Um, and even in my neighborhood, I live in a suburb. There's still a lot of streetlights. And so I see bats flying around and, you know, I hear about these special adaptations for low light for animals. But, you know, do these lights, the streetlights and everything have an effect on these nocturnal animals? Good question. Good question. Um, there are researchers that are looking at the effects of artificial light on nocturnal animals and nocturnal critters. So in the Chicago area where you are, Abigail, um, they did some field studies and they did some lab studies about, um, about what level of light affects the behavior of nocturnal animals. And what's they, what they found was that there is a level called um, six lux, which is like a, a measurement term of illumination. Um, to, in comparison, your kitchen lighting typically is 500 lux, okay? At six lux, though, that is what, that is the level that they found that reduces nocturnal activity and nocturnal behavior. Once they- It's not very high. It's not very high, just a little tiny bit of light. Um, so once they figured that out, then they mapped it over Chicago and they looked at Chicago's green spaces and what the level of lighting was at the uh, within those green spaces. So they took out light meters and things like that. And they found um, that 30 36% of the green space in the Chicago area was above that lighting level. So it has, so we are, these are green spaces where we're trying to, you know, give refuge to some of these wildlife, but um, some of that green space is is too bright for some of our nocturnal friends or nocturnal critters. So just in your own, I guess, personal world, 
think of, or if you're a business owner, a homeowner, um, even if you're a community advocate, think about, you know, the lighting that you have at your home. Um, there could be ways that you could reduce your outdoor lighting just in general, just reduce the number of lights you have. Um, dim, uh, dimmer switches or timer switches can help too. So you're not lighting up all night long. You're only lighting up a, a specific period of time. Um, shields over the tops of your lights. So we could go on and on and on about live light pollution, but the downward cast light doesn't spread out as much. So that helps too. So just thinking about, you know, your lighting around your home or your business can help those critters out, you know, in your day-to-day life. I know I've also heard, because obviously other insects will, are attracted to the light, right? And um, I've also heard that switching out your white light for a yellow light bulb can reduce the attraction that insects have to it. Come to it the same way that a white light does. Right. Um, so if you do really want to have a light on all night or have a motion sensor light, if you replace it with a yellow bulb, um, it can be better for um, insects. And then you won't have a pile of dead bugs right outside your door, too. Right. Um, which I don't know. Why I don't know if anyone's a fan of that. I know I was like, <laughs> like naturalists, not naturalists, anti nature people. I don't think anyone wants a pile of dead bugs. Exactly. Exactly. Well, and if you think about it too, your what your big bug blue light, you know, the blue lights that they that are bug zappers. I don't know if they have those around anymore, but those are blue lights. And so they are attracting those bugs. So just thinking about your own, just your own lights, changing that into that warm, that warm color, um, is it going to attract as many? So, well, thanks so much, Amy, for sharing your knowledge on nature at night. Uh, I learned a lot of new things. I hope everyone listening did today. Um, now it's time um, for our special spotlight. And this is the point in our show um, where we're going to shine a spotlight on something cool um, that we saw in nature this month. And we encourage you to think about something cool that you've seen in nature too. Um, so Abigail, I'm going to turn it over and ask you what your special spotlight is. Thank you. I almost wasn't ready. I was. I was this close. Um, but I was thinking about this. So I have just a teeny tiny story to tell you. When I was in college, I took a class with a, a professor um, who uh, we were doing restoration. And I didn't know much about birds. I've never been a bird person. Never, ever. I'm not a birder with a capital B, not even a lowercase b. Never been me. Um, so I we were driving and we're driving through all these like for a for a um, field trip. And we're driving. and I see all these black birds with red wings. And I'm like those birds are really numerous. What are those? And so I asked my professor, I'm like, what are those black birds with red wings? And he goes, they're called red wing blackbirds. And now <laughs> every time I see red wing blackbirds, when they come out this time of year, when you hear their distinct sound, when they're, they're, they tend to swoop as well. I always just think of that time when I was like um, naive enough to ask my prof- my all-knowing college professor, about what the name of the blackbirds with red wings were. So I'm excited to see the red wing blackbirds out and, and hanging out and um, being attracted to the the um, the spaces that we have in my yard. So I love that. Sometimes things are named how they look and it's right. very awful. <laughs> yeah, sometimes they're not though. Like that red bellied woodpecker. I feel like they're not enough red belly to be called that, a red belly. I'm just gonna throw it out there. Sharing <laughs> stuff. All right, Amy. Oh, my turn. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, I, w- I was fortunate enough uh, this week, last week, I think, um, 
we had a master naturalist class and we were at a really cool restoration place that had prairie, it had wetland, and she had a ton of wood duck boxes. And when we were there, um, she monitored these wood, wood duck boxes like, you know, every day. It was daily. And she knew exactly when the wood ducks um, laid their eggs and how many days they incubated, when they were supposed to hatch, and then when they were supposed to jump. So wood ducks, you know, use these cavities as their nesting places. And once those babies are born, they jump out of the box and then waddle down to the water. So we were there on the day that wood duck babies jumped out of the box. And we got to see them. It was the most amazing thing. I mean, that's a lifetime. It's a once in a lifetime thing. It was so amazing. And my best, our master naturalist got to see them too. So it was just a really cool experience. <laughs> that's awesome. I love that so much. You did tell us you had a good story off. So we're, <laughs> that's worth it. So good one. All right, Erin, you're up. Well, I'm going to round out our um, special spotlight with another bird uh, observation. We're really just rounding it out. Right. Um, so, Amy, you mentioned the Nighthawk earlier in the episode. And I was fortunate enough during our Master Naturalist training last week um, that my colleague, Kim, she found, she heard a Nighthawk. She's a birder. She heard it. Um, and she got her scope out, was able to find it, um, sleeping cause it was in the daytime, right? It was sleeping in a tree. Um, and we were all able to get a really, um, a view through her scope of that Nighthawk. And that was the first time she had ever seen one, um, actually seen it, not just heard it. So to me, that means that that doesn't happen that often. Um, so I thought it was pretty special that we were able to, um, get a, get a glance at that Nighthawk. So yeah, life lister. Yeah. yeah, I was just going to say life or like the, what is that? She must be a birder with a capital B. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Well, this has been another episode of the Spotlight on Natural Resources podcast. Thanks for joining us today and make sure um, to check out next month's podcast where we chat with Abigail um, all about biodiversity. Biodiversity.